I'm Robert Colangelo, and this is Green Sense, where we bring you eco innovations that are changing your world. Our friends at ANL are back to discuss the electric vehicle supply chain. And here to tell us more is Dave Golke, Energy and Environmental Analyst at ANL. Dave, welcome to Green Sense Show. Thank you. Well, your research uh, interests span the life cycle of vehicles from vehicle manufacturing to sales through vehicle operation and end of life. You earned both a PhD and an MS degree in physics from Ohio State University. Anything else you'd like to add about your background and how did a physicist end up uh, doing research on transportation? <laughs> yeah, happy to answer that. So yeah, I did nanoscience research as a graduate student at Ohio State University. Uh, and then a postdoctoral term in Germany. And while I very much enjoyed the research, I wanted to work on something that was a little bit more applicable, more real world. And I was lucky enough to uh, earn a fellowship to work at the Department of Energy's Vehicle Technologies Office for a few years. And that really let me see kind of the real world impact of the new technologies that are coming out. So that could be improved gasoline engines or lightweight vehicles, but also looking at electric vehicles. And I was in Washington, D.C. for a few years. And since then, I've lived here in Chicago uh, working at Argonne National Lab. What's your biggest takeaway when you worked at DOE uh, working on uh, cars? Yeah, it's a very rapid transition right now. So we are in a time where things are much different than they were even a few years ago. I mean, the vehicles are still a few seats and a steering wheel in front of you. Um, but even right now, that question of the steering wheel um, may be going away as um, connected and automated vehicles uh, potentially begin to gain prominence in our world. But at least for now, we've got the human-driven vehicles. And while we've used gasoline vehicles for the better part of a century now, um, electric vehicles are certainly becoming more prominent. There's um, market share of over 6% for electric plug-in electric vehicles last year. And that is likely to continue to grow over the next few years. In my younger years, when I worked at Argonne and at DOE, there wasn't a long-term energy policy. And this is a challenge because every time there's a new administration, policy seems to change. And with technology changing fast, that, that I think exacerbates the problem. Is there a long-term transportation policy at DOE? So the Department of Energy and the government as a whole is certainly interested in decarbonization of transportation. And the Department of Energy has historically taken a kind of all of the above approach. Whatever technology is best fit for a certain task um, is the way that the Department of Energy kind of feels that that should go. So not getting in the way of public sector investments of uh, different companies there, but rather trying to facilitate with advancement of technologies. And so for certain vehicles, that might mean uh, electric, uh, plug-in uh, electric from the grid. Uh, for others, it might mean using hydrogen or biofuels, natural gas, anything that really helps to overall hit the end target of deep decarbonization of the transportation sector. It does seem that in the light duty sector that electrification, and by that I mean plug-in vehicles, does seem like one of the best routes to decarbonizing the majority of the fleet. But again, this could be multiple technologies that come in and it's really best fit to the specific purpose is really where DOE aims to strive. 
that creates somewhat of a challenge for the private sector. A lot of these initiatives take tremendous amount of capital and they take a long term to implement. For example, if we switch from gasoline to hydrogen and had to set up a whole different pipeline, uh, uh, and you do a lot of work with supply chain and, and transportation is very vast. So maybe let's narrow that into one specific area, supply chain with the EVs. Tell us about what are all the elements of the supply chain when it comes to manufacturing EVs? Sure. Um, I'll do my best at answering that in the short <laughs> amount of time that we have. But an electric vehicle in a lot of ways is not too dissimilar from a conventional ICE, internal combustion engine vehicle. Um, it still has a chassis, it's got wheels, it has a powertrain that makes it go. Um, the difference, the main difference between those types of vehicles is really instead of having one kind of solid metal engine there, you are bringing in a battery. And that battery itself is um, comprised of many different um, elements, different uh, component materials there. And so what we're finding right now is um, with most of these batteries, almost well, all of the batteries now being lithium ion batteries, trying to understand if there's sufficient availability um, within the United States or, and worldwide to see if we have, if we can really make enough electric vehicles to cause this transition to happen. And so, for instance, we're tracking things like lithium mining. Uh, so you might have lithium mining. Uh, a lot of it is out west. There's a fair bit in Canada and in North Carolina are prominent as well. Is there going to be enough lithium uh, over the next decade? So not just the raw rock, but also processing that into lithium carbonate or lithium hydroxide. And we're tracking that for, as I said, lithium, for other critical metals that are in there in developing into the cathode and the anode, the energy carriers of the uh, batteries and into the battery cells. Battery cells are probably the easiest to visualize, think of maybe just a double A battery in your mind, um, those batteries, are we able to generate enough of them? And based on announcements that different companies have made, um, we're forecasting that there's probably going to be over 1000 gigawatt hours of batteries available made domestically here in the United States by the end of the decade. Um, to put that into context, that's probably more than enough for 10 million electric vehicles, which is most of the vehicles that are sold in a year. Um, so we're definitely seeing a growth in the number of announcements. These vehicles, or, sorry, these batteries are being used mostly for electric vehicles, but they could be used for other purposes uh, to help supplement the grid for electronics and so on. Uh, but batteries for vehicles are really where the greatest amount of growth is forecast over the next decade. Let me uh, jump in there. Mm -hmm. To your point earlier, this field is moving very rapidly. What happens if we find another element that batteries are made of and uh, lithium no longer is in vogue? How does that change analysis? And I guess protectionism in the US from being captive to other foreign suppliers? Yes, so there's a lot of different battery technologies that are potentially available. While lithium ion batteries are um, pretty well-renowned for both their stability, um, the fact that we've been using them for uh, a couple of decades now in many different applications, um, and their energy density, there are certainly other technologies that could come into play. Um, most of these are really being viewed as, by the end of the decade, 
we may very well be discussing some of them. I don't necessarily want to highlight uh, specific ones uh, to give kind of more prominence to one than another, um, but there are alternatives to the lithium uh, within the batteries and also to the metals that are currently being used. We, we're mostly using a mix of cobalt, nickel, manganese, iron, phosphorus. These are very common elements within batteries right now, lithium ion batteries right now, but it is certainly possible that those chemistries will change. Um, once you have it at the cell though, then the battery makers, you can make them into a pack and into a vehicle. And often the vehicles are pretty agnostic about the chemistry that goes into them. They care about the capabilities, being able to have a sufficient voltage, sufficient energy density, but not so much about the key metals or the key materials that are inside of those batteries. Yeah, that's a very valid point. You mentioned one of the big issues is batteries, which I agree with. Another big issue with EVs is just how few parts there are compared to an internal combustion engine, as well as uh, the emission of oil. Uh, when I think of environmental impacts, uh, just changing your oil has a big impact on the environment. Speak a little bit uh, uh, to the environmental impacts of the, the EV supply chain. Yes, absolutely. So the manufacturing of a vehicle, uh, historically, if we think about a normal vehicle, is responsible for a relatively small portion of the total greenhouse gas emissions that come from operating the vehicle over its life. Well, I'm going to say that again, because that's, that's pretty poignant. You're saying yes. that manufacturing actually produces a very small percentage of the greenhouse gas. Currently, when we're talking about gasoline vehicles, and the reason is that when we're burning the gasoline, that's of course creating, that combustion is creating all of the carbon emissions there. And you own the vehicle for tens of years. And so you have a long lifetime that really causes these emissions to, to accrue. For a battery electric vehicle, it's almost always the case. And I don't wanna say always because I'm sure there would be some exception, but where you end up with more emissions uh, compared to the conventional vehicle in the manufacturing phase. And a lot of this is due to the energy intensive act of, of course, mining and processing all of the components, but in just creating the batteries themselves. And so when you drive it off the lot, there are more embedded emissions in an electric vehicle than there are in a gasoline vehicle. Now, thankfully, uh, and here I'm talking, of course, about greenhouse gas emissions, uh, carbon dioxide and such. Now, thankfully, over the life of the vehicle, uh, based on typical electric grids, that those emissions are lower for electric vehicles over the course of their lifetimes. Because the electric grid, even if you're just processing a heavily carbon intensive grid, is quite efficient. And it, that leads to lower per mile emissions. So if you take the upfront embedded emissions and then add those per mile emissions, you end up with fewer greenhouse gas emissions over the life of an electric vehicle than over the life of a gasoline vehicle. Now, the other thing to note is thinking about, um, it gets away from the emissions side of things, but you noted how few parts there are. One of the things that we do note in our research is thinking about it from a personal perspective, 
most people don't know their carbon footprint. Um, I'm guilty of not knowing my full carbon footprint myself. However, I am pretty aware of how much I'd be spending on fuel, on emission, on maintenance and repair and things of that nature. And we do find in our research that electric vehicles have lower fuel costs um, because the cost of electricity um, with these quite efficient vehicles is lower than trying to uh, process the gasoline within the engine and also lower maintenance and repair costs because there are fewer uh, fewer of these parts here. And so over the course of a lifetime of a vehicle, while they may be more expensive up front, they can certainly have cost savings over the course of their life. So much like the higher upfront uh, environmental cost, there might be a higher upfront purchase cost, but over the long life of these vehicles, when they're on the road for on average over 12 years uh, based on current data and probably longer still, we find that the long-term benefits of the electric vehicles went out both economically and environmentally. Well, it takes a big brain to do all those calculations. <laughs> uh, you, 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 make, you make it sound simple, but tell us a little bit about what goes into calculating that to prove what you've just said. <laughs> sure thing. Um, it's an awful lot of understanding um, both the operations of the vehicle or uh, operations of the supply chain and kind of what's in there, as well as understanding the human behavioral component. So I noted uh, over 10 years, over 15 years, if a vehicle is only driven five miles a week um, for five years and then it's crashed, um, that happens sometimes for sure. Um, on the other hand, there are vehicles that are driven 500 miles a week for quite a long time. Um, so what our analysis tends to take is kind of understanding what the average usage profile of these vehicles is. And there are a lot of surveys and studies that have been done. So we use those as inputs. For the vehicle emission side of things, we have a model called GREET here at Argonne, which really breaks down all of the different factors that go into manufacturing and processing of different energy use. So how much um, energy did it take to extract a gallon of gasoline from the ground or from, which wasn't gasoline when they pulled it out, of course, petroleum and processing it into gasoline, or how much does it take to process one kilogram of steel? So we have a lot of these detailed analyses here. For costs, we do some detailed modeling on how much do we think that the vehicles cost today based on understanding the current market, as well as how much we think that these costs might decrease or, or change, I suppose they could increase as well, but change in the future based on both the market impacts of new mining technologies or increased stringency of uh, governmental fuel economy standards. How might those change the price of vehicles and therefore how might that change operational costs? In this divisive political climate where there's a total lack of trust in a lot of institutions, what kind of controls do you have in place that makes your science objective and uh, reliable? Well, the first thing I'll say is transparency. Whenever we're doing our analysis, we are trying to be fully transparent with all of the assumptions that we're making. And so uh, if anybody would like to read the 200-page uh, report on our cost of ownership. I welcome you to it. It's freely available online. 
but we are trying to be fully out there as far as any assumptions that we're making. But as far as the divisive political climate goes, we're really thinking about things that are broadly applicable to anybody, regardless of their political persuasion. So I think just about anybody can get behind, let's reduce our personal expenditures on fuel. We are not trying to say, we want you to drive less. We are not trying to say, we want you to drive a smaller car. We would like to say, hey, let's make a car, let's make whatever vehicle you have, let's make that as efficient as possible. And that's economically efficient, that's environmentally efficient. Let's try to do things in a way that I think anybody can get behind there um, as far as improving kind of individuals' welfare as well as the community societal welfare. Do you employ uh, peer reviews and following scientific method when you do this research? Absolutely. So talk a little bit about that. Sure. And so often when we uh, publish our results, we'll submit the, these for peer review, which is an uh, act where we'll write up our report, we'll send it off to a journal to be published, for instance, and uh, that journal will then send that draft version of the report to several other researchers in the field, uh, sometimes antagonistic, sometimes not. Um, but we get their feedback on what they think that we can do better. And we, of course, give feedback to other researchers when we're asked to do so. And that really works across the scientific enterprise to really end up with the best end results. Um, so we've definitely, I, I think any scientist knows this, you get feedback and you say, oh, I don't really want to do that specific analysis, but they're right. It will make this report better. It will make this uh, a better article here. And we work to improve our analysis there. And of course, the peer review doesn't stop once we have it on paper. Um, then people can take up that, that work and, well, work to refute it uh, potentially or work to uh, expand upon it and say, okay, this is what's out there. Um, I've heard that um, Isaac Newton said that he saw so far because he was standing on the shoulders of giants. And I've also heard that that was actually a dig at Robert Hooke, who uh, was short, um, and he was teasing his uh, compatriots there. But it is true that within science, we really do try to build upon the research that is out there. Um, that's really what keeps the scientific enterprise moving forward. And that's what makes uh, Argonne a world-class laboratory. Thank you. Uh, so I'm going to try to summarize this. Correct me if I've misstated anything. But when a total cost analysis is complete, all the data is reviewed. Uh, you found that when it comes to EVs, uh, based on uh, environmental impact and economic viability, they are better than internal combustion engines if they're draw driven long enough. And I think you said that was about 10 years. Yeah, the cross even the crossover point for economic impacts is actually even sooner than that. Um, but over the course of their life, which is it, on average well over ten years, they certainly hit that threshold. Dave, I've really enjoyed talking to you. I could go on all day, uh, but we have a limited amount of time. Thank you for sharing all this information. Uh, it's very important and uh, very well done. And thank you for being on Green Sense. Well, thank you for having me. It was a pleasure to be here. That's David Golke, Energy and Environmental Analyst at Argonne National Laboratory, talking about his groundbreaking research on the EV supply chain. 
Visit thegreensenseshow.com website to learn more about sponsorship. I'm Robert Colangelo. Thank you for listening to Green Sense and check out the Green Sense Minute every Thursday and Saturday on 105.9 FM, WBBM, Chicago. Green Sense Show is sponsored by CEA Technology, providing a sustainable modular indoor growing system. Visit ceatechn.com to learn more.